0: To be a man, you gotta beat the man. Dusty Rhodes is the man. He is a tower power. He is too sweet to be sour. He is the rap master. There is no other. There is no equal The man. That built the Omni is Dusty Rhodes. In this wrestling world, I have three times World Heavyweight Wrestling Champion. That's the bottom line. And the other bottom line is I am the current Bulls off the woods, if you will. And that makes me the baddest of them all. See, so you got a back,
1: nigga.
0: I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. I'm supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But, brother, I am bad, and they know I'm bad. You don't know what hard times are, daddy! So as the impression guy on this podcast, I would like to send out a personal apology to everybody. I will try not to do the Dusty Rhodes impersonation the entire time that we're here. (laughs) Also, too, since I'm in the mode of apologizing, I must apologize for Tyler Wood, because he's going to try and think that he has a better Dusty Rhodes than me. So he is going to be trying to do the Dusty Rhodes impersonation the entire time. And then, of course, Nick, you know, never wants to be left out. As always, he's going to try and do a Dusty Rhodes impersonation. So we do apologize for probably about minute 23 and 17 seconds where you're like, okay, guys, just tell the fucking story. Stop <laughs> talking with a fucking lisp. Stop telling everybody you're going to hit them, but with a bicycle, a bicycle, <laughs> baby. Stop throwing stuff in. So we're going to apologize for this right away. You will hear Dusty Rhodes impersonations. Sorry, Cody Rhodes. I know you hate them, but that's what this all is. So you're probably like, hey. These guys did a podcast about my dad. They're historical podcast. Maybe you want to check them out. And then you hear us just do the worst Dusty Rose impersonations for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours and upon hours. And doing bits within it. So, um, sorry, but you knew what you were getting into when you saw the name and you know the history of this podcast. So, start with a disclaimer, an apology, and a get fucking used to it. That's what we're starting <laughs> off with.
2: I don't know why you got to go apologizing, Daddy. There ain't nothing to be sorry <laughs> for when you got the feeling oh. that Dusty Rhodes running through you.
0: <laughs> That's right. We get the American team slide up on you. That sexual
2: Dusty Rhodes, they want going to slide up on you. If Dusty would have been around today, he'd be sliding into them DMs. You feel me, Daddy? <laughs> why are you putting Daddy? I don't think you put Daddy in there. <laughs> he said Daddy so many times. I've got the script for the Hard Times promo right in front of me. I see Daddy three times.
0: Well, he said, Daddy! <laughs> daddy! <laughs> you didn't just say Daddy. Daddy. You got to say it with more oomph. Oh, I'm, I'm not...
2: sorry. I, I didn't say daddy with enough oomph.
0: <laughs> yeah, please, I need you. Uh, listen, I need you to say daddy with as much oomph as possible. So you're ball, telling right?
2: me I, cou- I shouldn't say, hey, a computer
1: took your place, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't okay, do Okay, I that, won't. Please. I won't do that. Good.
0: All right, apologize for that and go on with my apology. I'm
2: sorry, Cody. I'm sorry, <laughs> Dustin. I'm sorry daddy
1: i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna do it the whole time okay so hello and welcome to 10 bell pod i'm nick alexander and i'm gonna reach my handout right now and i want everyone at home to know that i'm touching your hand through the podcast app you're listening on see just said it really normal <laughs> i am joined by common man tyler wood <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs>
0: <It> feels- <laughs> You can't call him common wrestling fan, but you can call him a common man, yes.
1: I'm working hard with my hands. (laughs) I am joined by a son of a farmer, a man who was also put on hard times by Ric Flair, the Iowan dream, the Man Scout Jake Manning. (laughs) Very true,
0: and my mentor in the church, I don't know what it's called, like my confirmation mentor, was a plumber, so... Uh, I have a connection. My my church father was a plumber as well, so... So you're almost you go. a
2: godson of a plumber.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm almost a godson of a plumber.
1: So we have a uh, mountain of a series for you today. So I like to think of pro wrestling as a continuous story that runs from the Gold Dust Trio saying, Hey, if we fake this shit, we can make money, all the way to WrestleMania three. All the way to the most recent student to take their first bump with George South. And it's kind of like a fantasy novel. Like kingdoms pop up, tyrants conquer, heroes die, nations fall. And each little kingdom has its own unique story. And within their story, there is a six degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon style game that connects Tootsmont and Orange Cassidy. And I think there is no one ever... More important than the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Bravo, Nicholas.
0: Bravo. I I see why my intro was so lackluster this week. Had, <laughs> wow. Right, that that siloquy, <laughs> unbelievable. Is that? Do you want me to say this at your funeral? Uh, <laughs> it is very eloquent how you put all of this and just put a nice little American Dream cherry on top of that Sunday right there for you.
2: <laughs> So that's it. The podcast is over,
0: right? (laughs) We covered it. I don't know why Nick keeps saying, you know, part one, part two. I I feel like you just nailed it right there, Nicholas.
1: Do you guys have anything before we get started? Just get into it. So there's a thing I want to cover as kind of a
2: personal connection to Dusty. When I first started watching wrestling, I brought it up to my grandpa. Him and I had a huge connection on it. Like every Monday and Friday night, I'd go over to his house and watch wrestling and... One of the people that he loved watching when he watched was Dusty Rhodes. And seeing Dusty come back as I was young, and like he came back into WWE around that time, that was a cool thing I was able to share with my grandpa now that he's passed away. And um, I've been watching for like 20 years. It's cool to look back on all this stuff with Dusty Rhodes, like all the way back to the territories. And I feel a real connection with my grandpa watching this old stuff, knowing that this is what he used to watch when he was out-of-town trucking. He would go to a random show in Georgia or Florida, and he'd be watching Dusty Rhodes, Sputnik Monroe, Harley Race. And he fell in love with professional wrestling through Dusty the same way that I fell in love with professional wrestling watching all the people I did back in when, when I first started watching. And now I'm able to enjoy, like, AEW, who, in part, his son helped create. And it goes back to that overarching story, like, four or five decades from my grandpa watching to... Me watching it now, we're connected in some way with Dusty Rhodes.
1: Grandpa didn't tell you about Robert Gibson?
2: (laughs) 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 He didn't talk. uh, To be honest, I think his favorite wrestler was Sputnik Monroe. Uh. But no, I didn't hear shit about Robert Gibson, not in our household.
0: Did, did Robert Gibson have happen to get up with Grandma? Is that why? Is that why you he never heard anything? <laughs> and that's why you keep forgetting his name. His, his name wasn't spoken, even though he's one of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time.
2: Well, my dad maybe why my dad's middle name is Gibson, so we <laughs> never really addressed that. I never asked why. Okay,
0: right. just curious. I'm right, just bringing it up. Okay, for me with Dusty, it, this is going to be an interest like extremely interesting layered one for me. For one. You know we like to have a lot of fun on here and make a lot of jokes, and I'm sure that will come up. And now knowing that Cody Rhodes is not a part of AEW, I feel like my job's been more secure with this podcast because when I saw this on the docket, I was very nervous. I was like, "Well, if this podcast gets too successful, I may lose my job." But at the same time, too, it's not like I'm going to trash Dusty this entire time. We we will have our fun for sure. But I think the cool thing for years was always to trash Dusty, like. I can't tell you how many shoot interviews I sat in on where people were talking shit about Dusty Rhodes, and I've heard people talk shit about Dusty Rhodes for almost two decades now as I've worked in professional wrestling, but I'll tell you what. The older I get and the more I see Dusty Rhodes in his prime, the more I appreciate him, appreciate his mind, his contributions, and how amazing he is. So when Nick said this was going to be our headliner main event guy, of season two i was like yep that makes total perfect sense because i and most certainly have grown to appreciate him and see him as a very important figure and i'm very excited to be talking about him today
1: all right daddy let's do this
0: Okay, daddy. I feel like I should have somebody's hand across my hand across one of your two's throats right now. I just say it like that, I just feel like I don't know. Maybe that's odd for me. Maybe that's some
2: PTSD in my nature. I don't know. Wait, did you just say that you heard the word "daddy" and you wanted to choke somebody? Yeah. I, I, I,
0: I sorry. It's inside me.
2: It's inside all of us, daddy. Don't worry about it. It's inside, it's inside
0: all of us, daddy. It's inside all of us, daddy. That's right. It's like the Americans yes. ring this.
1: Virgil Riley Runnels Jr. was born October 11th, 1945 in Austin, Texas. The son of a plumber. Dusty grew up in a blue collar family. He grew up as an athlete playing baseball football and he was pro wrestling in his backyard as young as eight years old
2: i caught like part of one of his shoot interviews and he was talking about how he was the booker for the backyard, (laughs) and he was like well obviously i was booking myself to win (laughs) so even back then he knew he was the top guy
0: (laughs) he knew i didn't secure a spot he, he assessed that right away, probably in the same sense that his dad ran his own plumbing company. He didn't work for anybody else. Probably some lessons that he learned right away as a young child.
1: Dad, Dusty won't let me go over. Dad, unless Dusty it, unless- keeps losing, but then
2: he wins the day after on a reversal of a disqualification. <laughs>
0: Dad, I was the champion, and they came back the next day, and all of a sudden, he went off to New York. It was so (laughs) weird.
1: (laughs) Growing up, Virgil got the nickname Dusty after pro baseball player James Dusty Rhodes, an outfielder for the New York Giants, obviously before they moved to San Francisco. And Dusty was on pace to become a pro baseball player himself out of high school. Dusty had a scholarship to play baseball and football at Sol Ross State University in Alpine, Texas and he let the NIA college division and RBIs. Dusty was crushing it on the baseball side of things. However, the American dream wasn't about going to class, and eventually they put him on harsh times and kicked him out of school. Dusty was able to walk on to another small Texas school, this time for football at Tarleton State, when a friend showed the football coach there a VHS of an All-American center that was not Dusty. But once again, things didn't quite work out on the school side, so he ended up at West Texas State, the place that has produced more pro wrestling legends than the Performance Center.
0: It is very staggering that all of these guys ended up at West Texas State on the football team at, at some point in time. I don't know what was the attraction to it. Knowing what I know about poor wrestlers and how we don't like to follow rules in the society and do things correctly, I got to imagine that West Texas State Admission Program was just like, sure, come on in. (laughs) You're athletic enough? Come on in. Like You you don't need to be smart at all. So I'm guessing the graduation rate at west texas state was actually probably pretty low because if i know anything about pro wrestlers we are the dumbest lot you'll ever meet so if anybody gave us the opportunity to do athletics with minimal academics we would have been all over it.
2: i just imagine the football team at west texas state like all of them lining up and then like as soon as the play starts they're like thumbing people in the eye and like making the refs look somewhere else kicking someone in the balls I just imagine a ton of heel shit going on
0: with Dusty hiking the ball to himself and running down the field all by himself oh man (laughs) I carried that team on my back daddy you're not even the quarterback Dusty it don't matter yeah here's here's this like left tackle calling plays you're like Dusty (laughs) shut the fuck up (laughs) Tully's clearly the quarterback here
1: Following his West Texas State days, Dusty made a run at going pro. He tried out for the American Football League's Boston Patriots, but he was cut. He then went to play for the Continental Football League. He played for the Hartford Charter Oaks Go Trees, but around this time they were on bad times, and they were canceling games because of financial troubles, and they would eventually even fold March of 68. In 67, Rhodes saw an advertisement in the newspaper for Tony Santos Big Time Wrestling in Boston. He uh, connected with Tony using the funk's name as an N, and there Dusty began training, wrestling, learning the basics, debuting as Dusty Ruddles.
0: Listen here, baby. I seen door funk in a jackthrap. That's why you should let me run. How to take a few bumps, hit the ropes, baby. I have seen the swinging slow balls of Dory Funk Jr. That man was ball when he was twenty years old.
2: Did he see Terry Funk's wanger?
0: <laughs> goddamn wanger was blowing, <laughs> blowing in the goddamn wind. They tried to make me put a cup on when I went out there. I was like, no, gotta keep that goddamn wanger just swinging violently down the field like a helicopter dick <laughs> as I'm running through the line, knocking people in the kneecaps, taking out hamstrings like the Tanya Harding, just knocking people over. You ain't going to get me to get no, put a no goddamn cup on when I'm playing football. I got to be free-balling, free-dicking my way through the line.
1: Dusty went from college kid to football player in a failing league to rookie pro wrestler. So financially, he was on difficult times. Dusty was living out of his car. Sorry, this is Boston. Dusty was living out of his car. He was hitting up soup kitchens for chowder. So, you know, he wasn't killing it in Boston. He was doing
0: favors (laughs) for the Kennedy family. All the illegal bull-legging that was going on, Dusty was breaking legs just for John Kennedy to get votes for the long shaman.
2: I can't do a, a Boston accent. This was covered in New Jack, so I won't, <laughs> <laughs> I won't try.
1: chim chim a you was know, a Boston tea party. You know, you know.
2: <laughs> All mine just sound like, like New Jersey.
1: After being broke in Boston, Dusty headed back home to Texas ending up in Dallas working for Fritz von Erich's version of big-time wrestling, a precursor to world-class championship wrestling. He changed his name to Dusty Rhodes, and he'd get pretty steady work from Fritz for the better part of 1968. He'd also get a little education and training from Tolly's dad, Joe Blanchard. It was in Dallas that Dusty hit it off with Gary Hart, who managed Dusty on screen and also kind of put in like a good word for him backstage. Dusty would do some tagging with the Spoiler, who pops up a ton in Pod research. In 1968, Dusty headed over to Kansas City and began tagging with Dick Murdoch forming the Texas Outlaws. And here's where wrestling will slowly start kind of working out for Dusty. The Outlaws would grab the Central States tag titles, beating Terry and Tommy Martin. Dusty would also take the Central State's heavyweight title off of Tommy Martin, so he's just fucking Tommy shit all up. In 69, Dusty spent some time in Houston before heading to fellow West Texas State alums, Territory Western States, which was managed by the Funk family. There, the Texas outlaws faced Thunderbolt Patterson and Wahoo McDaniel, Dusty tagged with Harley some. He had matches against both Terry and Dory. So it's pretty good little crew to be growing up and wrestling around.
0: And when you see like early heel Dusty Rhodes stuff, it's so weird <laughs> because like primarily you've seen Dusty—he's the American Dream, the huge baby face, the guy who's beating the shit out of the heel, bionic elbow, just ass kicker, Texas bull rope, all these things, but. When he teamed with Dick Murdoch and the Outlaws, he was like doing silly little comedy spots and just l- bumping his ass off, l- looking like a fool for anybody who, who they put him in the ring with. Just a bump machine, having no problem being made a fool of and like made to look silly in the efforts to make the good guy look like the big hero and ass kicker. So, like, people could say what they want about, like, Dusty having an ego and having all types of, oh, he never wanted to look silly. He never wanted to look this way. I think if you go back and look at this stuff, you're like, oh, well, he had a whole career of making the good guy look good. And I'm sure after doing that for years with Dick Murdoch, you probably want to be the guy that looks good. (laughs) Like, you're like, hey, like, I've made everybody else look good. It's about time somebody else makes me look good, so you can say that that's arrogant or not, but he was doing his job at this time to be that, you know, stereotypical heel to slip on the banana peel whenever he
2: could. And it's really odd to see, like, like, just have, he hasn't found that character yet, and, like, to see somebody this early in their career so different from what they're gonna become, it's it's jarring, kind of. Like, I, I don't be, sorry, Jake, I don't watch a ton of stuff from the 70s, but Going back and watching this on this grainy footage, it seems like it was a like it was a lifetime ago because most of these people are dead now. But like it it seems like a hundred years ago. But it's been what fifty years, and wrestling has transformed so much as a an art form. But Dusty Rhodes was there for most of that, and that's insane to see him coming from like the sixties and the seventies where kayfabe was you know so alive you'd beat the shit out of somebody in a bar all the way up to today where he was training people in NXT. It's, it's, it's insane.
0: And his run with, with Outlaws, him and, him and Dick Murdoch, I mean, an argument could be made that they were a Hall of Fame team just even with this career, not to mention everything else that would come later in his career. Just this, this spot right here, you could make a solid argument that they would have been a Hall of Fame team with just this run of them together.
1: By 70 Dusty was in yet another big-time wrestling. This time, the Sheik's territory. There, the Texas Outlaws were running through the tag team division, and Dusty is working with legends like Bobo Brazil, Haystacks Calhoun, and Wilbur Snyder. <laughs> I'd forgotten that was a bit on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, uh, and I
0: just saw like an old wrestling poster that had Wilbur Snyder on there. And once again, I did the whole thing. I'm like, oh, God, that, guy, that guy's a wrestler right there, man. And then I remember that Nick just clowns his name every time we bring him up on this
1: podcast. By uh, fall of 70, Dusty would have his first run at what would turn out to be a very important territory for him, Championship Wrestling of Florida, but we're not quite to him dominating there yet. In early 71, Dusty dipped down to Australia, mate, working their version of WCW. And in Australia, Dusty had to do the wind-up for the bionic elbow in reverse because, you know, the, the, toilet, the <laughs> toilet. Jesus Christ, <laughs> what are you doing? Like,
0: well, you couldn't even get through that. You you could not get through that. Now we see why you wanted to do this Dusty Rhodes uh, as the main event. You're like, it's all a build-up to that joke right there. <laughs> Congratulations, folks. This is the end of 10 Bell Pod. This is all Nick has wanted to do with season two.
2: We're 25 minutes in. I got to tell you, best writing of the season so far. I'm having a great
0: time. I think this needs to be put in for Emmys submission or whatever they get podcast. Is it Emmys? Is it Academy Awards? Whatever it is, this is what we're submitting.
1: Back in the States, Dusty had a nice little stay in the AWA. And at this point, Dusty had been on TV like some. But in AWA, it seemed like way more of a regular occurrence for him. And he's, of course, working all the AWA guys, Bockwinkle, the Axe. He'd do a job for Vern Gagne for the AWA title. And uh, Murdoch would even head up there with him and do a good bit of tag team matches.
0: Okay. This is probably about an era in time that either like Ric Flair was around or watching as a huge fan of wrestling. It's been well-documented how big of a fan the Rick was to Dusty. So much, in fact, that he wanted his first wrestling name to be Ramblin' Ricky Rhodes so he could be Dusty's brother and be part of the the Outlaws with him and Dick Murdoch. And he even talks about a, a time and he went on a Japan tour with Murdoch and Rhodes and they just ribbed him mercilessly <laughs> where he just wanted to be a, be a part of them and hang out with them and be around them. So, I mean, it's probably a, about that time period where, you know. Rick is becoming aware of someone like Dusty.
1: In summer of 73, Dusty went to Japan working for International Wrestling Enterprise. And there, Dusty and Dick took on people like Great Satsuko. Satsuko. God damn it. Fuck him. Uh, Russia Kimura. <laughs> <and laughs> Str- you can't pronounce the Great Satchmo. That's, that's not what it is. <laughs> Guys.
0: <laughs> Every one of you in the sound of my voice right now, I highly recommend that you become a patron of 10 Bell Pod because between season two and season three, we will probably be voting and give our patrons an option to select an episode. So what I'm saying for all of you is become a patron just so you can vote for Mitsuharu Misawa to be an episode and you can hear more quality content, a.k.a. Nick, just say a Japanese wrestling legend's name and then just get halfway through and say, fuck him, and then move on to somebody who sounds Russian. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, man. It's, it's, I'm from Monroe. I can't help it. I literally can't form the fucking words with my mouth. <laughs> All right. He, he took out people like Russia Kimura and Strong Kobayashi. <laughs> oh, hold your applause. Back in Florida, Hill Dusty would soon turn into a good guy, leaving the outlaws behind and chipping it, chipping the, I'm so fucked up now. Like fucking Porky the Pig. What is happening?
2: <laughs> See, this is the curse of Orville or uh, Wilbur. Wilbur. God or, or- damn it. I picked the wrong pig. Orver. Orville. <laughs> I feel like Orville's <laughs> a pig and stuff. God damn it. I almost burned you good. And I end up fucking myself.
1: <laughs> Yeah,
2: this is like the curse
0: of Orville Redenbacher. You just burn yourself and turn into a piece of popcorn.
1: Oh, my God. All right. Back in Florida, Hill Dusty would soon turn into a good guy, leaving the outlaws behind, becoming the common man as the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Now a good guy in Florida, Dusty would also capture the Southern heavyweight title on top of receiving multiple shots at the NWA world champion, Jack Briscoe. He'd start tagging with Eddie Graham, and he would start making the occasional stopover in Georgia. Eddie and Dusty would get a run with the tag team titles, and Dusty would even trade the Florida heavyweight title with Bill Watts.
0: To to rewind a little bit with the breakup of the Outlaws, people always ask, like, why did you just leave this very successful team and just break out on your own? And, you know, like, Dusty's had multiple stories on why. I think the one he's commonly told is he just got tired of hanging out with Dick Murdoch and partying all the time and wanted to be a bit more serious and wanted to take this career to the next level. It's like one of those things like you see a lot of great bands and they start off and they're about partying, having a time, playing the shows. And then it gets to a point that somebody gets an opportunity to be able to produce their own record or do their own things. Or I want to do these things with our career. And the band just like, I just want to play music, man. Where lead singers worrying about his visibility in the public or his internet presence or social media presence or these other things or sponsorships and doing all these things. And then the band just wants to play music and tour and do their things. And that's kind of what Dick Murdoch was. He just wanted to wrestle, drink every night. And that's all he wanted to do for his entire life. And that's exactly what he did his entire life, where I think Dusty had much loftier goals and he really found it a lot in Florida. Anytime the discussion of Florida during his time there, it's always stuck in my head. Dusty saying the words, we made so much fucking money in Florida. I remember many people in the developmental system that knew Dusty, and they would just say at a drop of a hat, he would talk about how much of a big deal he was in Florida. It could be something as small as somebody's like, Excuse me, sir. Can I get by and get a cup of coffee? Do you have any idea how big of a deal I was in Florida, (laughs) baby? Nobody cut a line in the American dream. Nobody. Matter of fact, I was such a big star. They had Maxwell House would pour a garden hose of coffee to me, baby, from the plant. They put it in my house. I had it running like a tapper. If it was a beer tap from Cooler's Light, Dick and Murdoch would have been over every night. He would have followed me down to Florida. But no, I need Maxwell House because I've been working hard. I'm working days. I'm working nights because I am the American dream. And I made so much fucking money, baby, in the state of Florida. And how dare you try and sneak by me just to get yourself a hot beverage.
2: I can independently confirm uh, from stories I heard from my grandpa Woody. Dusty Rhodes was indeed a tough sum bitch back in Florida. That's where my grandpa <laughs> saw most of Dusty's work, championship wrestling for Florida with Gordon Sully. And uh, he said that curly headed man was a bad sum bitch.
0: This is like tight perm, Dusty. Yeah. Right? <laughs> to quote one of my favorite comics, Eric Trundy, Dusty Rhodes had a hairdo that was similar to a uncooked block of ramen noodles. <laughs> so like, that's the only way to. Really accurately describe what he had going
1: on. And then, obviously, it just, it just got bigger over time. Not to plug the other podcast I do sometimes, but uh, I play poker on Fridays with Eric Trondy, 9 p.m. Eastern, on Card Charts. That was very, a very organic work-in. There
0: you go. Uh, know- cross-branding, <laughs> sc- cr- cross-promotion. Synergy,
1: as they call it in the business. <laughs> I didn't know you knew, Eric.
0: Yeah, I booked him in the worst Vizart video show I ever had, oh, and okay. he was pro- he probably had the best headlining set of anyone there. So
2: yeah, that's he, how those things he work. Booked him, Terry. He booked him. It's my my one beyond the mat reference for this episode.
1: <laughs> All right, in late 70s... <laughs> <laughs> yes, move
0: on quicker, Nicholas. Move on quicker before he does another one.
2: Before he does another one poorly. Move on. God, they're not I I can't do any of them well.
1: In late 75, we get a Texas outlaw reunion in all Japan. I assume because the news just hadn't gotten there that Dusty was a good guy. There, Dusty worked with guys like Giant Baba, Jumbo Saruda, Harley Race, and Abdullah the Butcher. So we're only in 75 here, and that six degrees of Toots Mont to Orange Cassidy game is already, like, pretty damn connected. Back home in Florida in early 76, Dusty was getting more NWA title shots, this time at Terry Funk, before driving up the East Coast a bit to the Carolinas to do his first work, with Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, a territory that would eventually dominate his entire legacy.
0: And these early matches is really where it all
1: kind of starts for like the
0: feud against the Funks and the Rhodes, the Dusty Sucks eggs, just everything that was said about Terry Funk back and forth, the war of words between Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes. I mean, even in 2005, when Tony Hunter would book them against each other at Carolina championship wrestling. Like obviously after their athletic prime and they just had their wits about them. Like those, even the battles then in 2005 were incredible. I can't imagine what they would have been like in 1975, just unbelievable stuff should be studied by every professional wrestler out there. And and if you're not, I don't even know how you call yourself a professional wrestler. If you have not studied the promos of Terry Funk, on Dusty roads and vice versa.
1: Not quite lured away by Crockett just yet. Dusty would be back in Florida in 77 to feud with Ox Baker, the great Ernie Ladd. And he got a WWWF title shot against Billy Graham in Florida. That seems like such a big no-no. I mean, this is when
0: they all worked together. This is when Vince Sr. was very friendly and affluent and everybody... Appreciate him, and he, you know, what he said went, and his word was his bond. And he was kind of in control of Andre's bookings. So, if you wanted Andre for two weeks in your promotion, you were very nice to Vince McMahon, but Vince McMahon wouldn't hold it over your head. You'd be like, Well, you know, if you want Andre, you're going to let me do this. I mean, he ran a very fair and honest business, and promoters respected that and appreciated that. So, when his son comes around and wants to take over the world, you can see why they would be so pissed. <laughs> like you're not your dad. Your dad had more respect. You know, you respected what I, what business I was doing in Shreveport, Louisiana. <laughs> things like that were done all the time. And the NWA belt was defended in Madison Square Garden. I think even as late as like 1983. So things like this were done all the time.
2: It is really sad to see. The ecosystem, it's like nature, like ecosystems working together to support one another, like everybody getting something out of everything. And then when Vince comes along and is like the invasive species, slowly strangles out all of the other ecosystems over time, eventually swallowing up, ah, fuck, I don't, I've kind of lost the metaphor here, but swallowing up Dusty, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but like seeing what became of this ecosystem in Dusty's lifetime, it's fucking sad. All these promotions got swallowed up. This man's here wrestling in front of thousands of people. Fucking killing it. And they're putting on these great shows. And Vince McMahon comes and stomps it out.
0: But then here's the interesting thing, too. If we don't have COVID and a multitude of promotions kind of go away or fall by the wayside, you look at the things that are going on in AEW, working with New Japan. you know, And obviously, the purchase of Ring of Honor leads to the existence of that brand, you know, if the growth of Billy Corgan's NWA kind of slowed because of shutdowns and lockdowns, obviously they had a lot of momentum, a lot of things going, well maybe they would have been in a better spot that when they did business with All Elite Wrestling would have been a little bit different. I don't know. There's a multitude of things. There's a lot of promotions that kind of just fell by the wayside or lost the momentum they had that, you know, them doing business with All Elite Wrestling would have been even bigger business than what already is and that's the thing
1: with that's so big about this new Japan thing forbidden door and
0: everything else so
1: are you saying that Vince McMahon himself orchestrated the covid hoax to crush his wrestling competition
0: i believe he has given money to a laboratory in china <laughs> now was that to manufacture a virus that would start a global pandemic or was that for steroids that would make him live to 150 i don't know but i he's definitely giving money to a chinese laboratory that's all i know
1: hey that's working pretty well confirm dude
2: i saw him take a stunner at wrestlemania hasn't missed a beat
1: (laughs) dusty would also have some wwf title matches against superstar billy graham in madison square garden and anyone who thinks dusty is like a territorial wrestler only big in florida Fucking pop the roof off of Madison Square Garden.
0: It just because they were great talkers. And that's the thing about that W W W F territory is it was a lot of just big guys, squashing dudes. You didn't see a lot of really great matches. I, I can't even think of like guys that were like really good promo guys. You'd have like Bruno and then just guys come in to job to Bruno and you'd have a few attractions and then you have Andre. And then superstar Billy Graham came around and with, you know, his rap and his shtick, like that was so unique and fresh. But then when you have somebody who can match that and equal that verbiage wise, and also too, there's that kind of coolness factor that Dusty leaned into of being like from Texas, like almost kind of cowboy ish, but not really like he'd have fancy robes coming out and, you know, like being very flamboyant. To upstage Billy Graham's flamboyantness. But he also liked Texas Bull Rope. And he'd come out with chaps on to Madison Square Gardens. And Cowboys were cool. And John Wayne. And that whole vibe. So, I mean, it just shows the star power of Dusty. being able to come in to Madison Square Garden. If you can get over there, you can get over anywhere. And Dusty got over there, for sure. And they didn't have nor see anybody like Dusty in that that territory during that time. God bless him. Don Morocco was a big star there. and When can you think of like a really great Don Morocco promo? But he was a good physical presence, and he was strong and believable, and he did good there. But you had someone like Dusty who was big and flamboyant and could match Billy Graham word for word for word for word, and also something unique and different. Those are all the necessary needs for success in that territory at that time.
2: It's kind of leaning into like the the X Factor. And we see that more now today kind of personified that you don't always need to be a great technical wrestler or have this, have that. If you've got the charisma, like more so probably now than ever. If you have charisma as a professional wrestler, you have like that X factor, that character, something that draws people to you and just a likability. Sometimes that's all you need. And Dusty had that and more and that he had that and he could back it up with being a great wrestler.
0: Yeah, and I think that was a word I was trying to fish around for was charisma. You know, people talk about Hulk Hogan and his charisma. I mean, that was in the 80s. I mean, Dusty's doing it right here five years prior to. And just really think about the wrestlers before Dusty. Who really had the, the level of charisma that he had?
2: Gorgeous George? Who?
0: but i mean he had charisma but as far as a talker though oh yeah yeah no you know what i'm saying like not only did he have the charisma but he could verbally express that Uh, that's extremely important like obviously you know gorgeous george definitely had the presentation and had his own charisma but it was very visual it was not verbal that's something you could that made it like a 3d character I can't think of too many people like that, and maybe a Nick Bockwinkle, but he was very subtle and very educated. Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, maybe I, I, he had it, but I mean that I haven't heard too many of his promos, but I just remember him being boring as fuck <laughs> <in> commentary. And <laughs> in, in WWE, I think in like the early '80s, so that, that's what I think of. I mean, there's not a lot of people that have that that level of charisma and uniqueness about them. So, you know, we talk about Hulk Hogan, but, you know, prior to that, I mean, Dusty, Dusty had been doing it for a while. So, you know, if I'm Dusty, I see why you kind of have that chip on your shoulder when people want to knock you for not being that big a star. When he was like, look, I was Mr. Charisma before Mr. Venice Beach with blonde hair
1: showed up and yellow boots that's definitely a point i kind of wanted to touch on at this point dusty is a star and as famous and remembered and and beloved and iconic as dusty Rhodes is it's only like half the story because his peak of celebrity was before nationally syndicated tv wrestling it just happens that dusty at three-fourths over is still more over than all these other guys in their peak But he was his most famous before, you know, people of our generation, especially Tyler, would even know anything about Dusty Rhodes. I mean, Tyler also missed out on Hulk Hogan being super fucking
0: over. He was born in 1994. Mm -hmm. So, like, think about that, wrestling fans. If you want to know why I'm so angry (laughs) at Tyler, he has no comprehension of the overness of mania. Like, you didn't live Hulk-a-mania.
2: Oh, you want me to piss him off even more? I didn't live through Austin and the Rock.
1: Oh, Jesus. (laughs) I started watching
2: in 03. Eddie Guerrero was the first, like, bit of that magic I got.
1: I mean, that's that's good. I mean, that's fair.
2: Him beating Brock, dude, that's... That's yeah, like my yeah. first fall in love wrestling pay-per-view memory.
0: All right. And that is the only reason we can talk to you for two hours. <laughs> <time>. <laughs>
2: hey, I passed my thing. I'm not on probation.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Check out patreon.com backslash tempo pod.
1: In seventy-eight, Dusty would tag up with Andre the fucking giant. Getting a hold of the tri-state tag titles, and tri-state is more or less mid-south. Seventy-nine, Dusty worked in Japan again. This time, New Japan, just adding more big names to the list. He's got Inoki, Fujinami, Ricky Choshu. Then, August 21st, 1979, Dusty would face Harley Race in Tampa, Florida for the NWA title. That night, the son of a plumber would beat the greatest wrestler on God's green earth to become champion of the world. But... Dusty holds the belt for five days before dropping it back to Harley. The fuck is this Jake? Is this like a pop the territory? Is this like an audition run? What, what is this?
0: I mean, they, they kind of, they're very protective of the NWA title this time. I mean, I think that goes without saying sometimes these things are like trial runs for, for the title. It's one of those things you you don't really know until you kind of try it out. Like, you know, Oh, Dusty's pretty popular. Maybe he could be our champ. Well, let's put the belt on him when Harley's doing a loop of Florida and he just wins it back before he gets out of there. And now, you know, it's not going to hurt the Florida territory. none. if anything, it's going to enhance it. They've done good business with us. The grams have done good business with us. And now they have a guy who is a former world champion. That's always going to seek to chase that dream of being the world champion. And they know that Harley can come back and they can build another bigger match months down the line and have months of promotion as opposed to the promotion they did for this. But now people believe that it could happen again. So the event could be even bigger than it was before. So it doesn't hurt to do that because it could create bigger and better business. If Dusty wins the title and it gets over like a fart in church, we're like, well, it was only five days and just kind of move on. I guess guys just not built for it, not meant for it. And that's what it is. And, you know, whatever. But if it helps build the territory and build up and, The magazines see it as credible it's like something you're like "Mm, let's let's bookmark this let's think about this let's come back to this let's revisit this let's see how he acts with this new level of fame that he has as a former nba world champion is he going to use his now found power and fame for good or is he just going to throw it all away these these are all things that the NWA board members got to discuss and figure out. And also too, like Harley's got to get a report of like, like, Hey, this guy's good. And I wouldn't mind doing it again. He was good to work with. He was right there for everything. He listened to everything. I think he might have something. And then also too, like Dusty's attitude, probably when he drops it five days later, as opposed to, you know, being all boo-boo face about it. Probably had a good attitude, like, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for this. Being very humble. I'm sure these are all things they want to find out before they give him the world title to travel across the world with and represent the NWA as their world champion. I'm, I'm sure these are all things that they wanted to know, and the only way you're going to know that is is by doing it.
2: And one of the things, I think this was, not to get out of order here, but I think this was a later time, spoilers, when Dusty held it again. Gordon Soley on commentary in Championship Wrestling from Florida, he's calling a championship match. I think it was Dusty and Harley. He said something in kayfabe, but it's also true. Like, it's tough to be the NWA world champion because you are now traveling on another level like uh it's not just that you're in your local territory and you're there for a few months at a time it's like boom you're uh, a week or a month here then immediately a week or a month here immediately a week or a month here you don't even have the stability to settle into a territory for an extended amount of time you are expected to be wrestling probably what 300 days out of the year and this is constantly at, traveling
0: at least at least 300 if Not more, like 325 or 330 and the other 20 days are because you were on a flight (laughs) (laughs) to to Japan in the 70s, you know. But yeah, and like I said, this, this pushes Dusty to another level in Florida. This is much in the same sense that I equate being on AEW Dark as doing a late night set now here in 2022. Winning the NWA title for five days is like being on The Tonight Show and having Carson call you over to the couch to talk. You're that level of a made guy that you're going to headline clubs, you're going to be in demand, and people view you differently now. You you will get a sitcom immediately. You're getting the Freddie Prince treatment right away, and it's just in that local area. And, and it helps that territory. The top star having that level of a rub will now make that, that territory seem more legitimate. Because, like, hey, we had a former world champion here. So it does nothing but good things and good business for everybody. And someone like Harley is smart enough to see that.
2: Jake, let me ask you this from, like, a booking perspective. Does it make more sense to only have the NWA world champion, like, on long reigns, uh, a heel? Because in the world of professional wrestling, people are paying to see the heel get their ass kicked, right? So,
0: well, yeah, and that's what I was thinking about with this episode. I'm, I I'm glad you. I was having that thought experiment in my head. Sometimes I get lost. My my poor girlfriend. She she asked me all these questions like, "What are you doing in the shower for so long?" I'm like, "I'm sorry, I'm just debating on whether or not it's better to have a baby face NWA World Champion <laughs> or <a> heel <laughs> champion in." in 2022 because i'm lost in thought on what would be better in a thought experiment um yes it it makes more sense to be the heel but at the same time too you can still do it as, as a good guy being an nwa champion you just have to be this high watermark in wrestling and view it as such and you can you could probably go against that promotions top good guy as well and he's just trying to come up to it and come up to it but he can't Get over that level. Obviously, it's better to have a a true bad guy, and obviously, you know, if you're the champion, you have to adjust how you wrestle when you're wrestling a good guy challenger. But then it's also, if you are a good guy, you have to be that big of a star. Like Hulk Hogan was a huge star as a good champion. So when Dusty would come to a territory and he'd be wrestling a heel who's making a challenge, it has to be a situation like, oh my gosh, Dusty Rose is here. We have to come buy a ticket for that. But If you do some sort of weird, controversial thing, it doesn't make him look so much like a hero. But at the same time, too, it makes this heel have a gripe and something to complain about that's legitimate. Like, hey, I should have won the NWA world title, and you guys should have known that. You saw Dusty Rhodes got out of here and turned his tail and run. And he talk shit about Dusty Rhodes until he comes back again and says, oh, you want some more? Then here we go. And then you're up again. And you could, you could book it like that. And I'm sure it was done like that multiple times over. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on examples, but every promotion was different. Every promotion saw it differently. Every promotion saw it as like, hey, I need a bad guy at the top. Or I need a good guy at the top. And we have an opportunity to bring the NWA champion in. So we have to get one of these people ready and, and get the circumstances. But then also, too, like Dusty knows how to... Be that bump and feed heel if he needs to. If, you know, these people know him as a star, but all it takes is just one little promo where he kind of comes off as a dick, which probably ain't too hard <laughs> when he starts talking about, I'm the biggest star you ever seen, Daddy. I'm world renowned, NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I carry the temp out of the gold because my shoulders were made to carry the weight of this. Made to carry the weight, much like I was made to carry the weight of a 100 miles of plumbing piping when I was working with my daddy. Back in Austin, Texas, in the heat, so hot. Austin, Texas. My soldiers were meant to carry the heavy weight. I used to carry cinder blocks up ladders, and my dad was a plumber working in the basement. That's what I know about hard work. Sometimes it don't make sense, daddy, but sometimes it braids you to be a
2: champion. Thought we agreed we weren't going to do that, Jake. We just
1: did it. We just
0: did it. In 1980,
1: Dusty went back to New Japan, this time working with people like Bob Backlund, Chavo Guerrero, Andre, and then the following year in 81, he worked against a young Hulk Hogan, who was a huge Dusty fan and heavily influenced by the dream. Back in the States, October 24th, 1980, Dusty would win the first ever coffin match against Ivan Koloff, and... Obviously, that match would be made famous by old mean Mark. Someone Dusty would run into in about 10 years. You guys ever see that shit? It's fuck crazy.
0: She was dope. It was nice. It
1: was nice. <laughs> Dusty would just keep crushing as a main eventer and booker in Florida. But by June 21st, 1981, Dusty would head to the Omni in Atlanta, where he'd take on Harley Race for the world's title. Winning it this time for a nice little amount of time. So Dusty's hitting the road, he's fulfilling his duties as NWA champion, uh, traveling territory to territory, defending the belt. He's wrestling Jimmy Snuka in Georgia, the Iron Sheik in Greenville, Dory in Florida, all while continuing to fend off Harley in rematches. This all led to a match in Kansas City, September 17th, 1981, when Dusty would go up against Ric Flair with Luthez as special guest ref, dropping the belt, giving the Nature Boy his first ever world title.
0: If I'm not mistaken, like, this ring was super small, too. Like, if you've ever seen the video of it. like I I remember, like, Flair even bitching about how shitty the ring was. (laughs) Like, he goes, "Fucking, fucking Kansas City, can you fucking believe it? Fucking can't this shit-ass fucking ring. Got goddamn Luthez in the goddamn way the whole fucking time. Fucking Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. Fucking this is how you put the belt on me? You're lucky I'm fucking winning this thing 16 times. Fuck. Woo.
1: <laughs> Without a belt to hold his pants up, Dusty would continue to travel the territories, now with the rub of being a two-time world champion, before getting yet another title shot. This time as the Midnight Rider,
0: and Midnight Rider was always kind of like the Yellow Dog. If if you're in it, like if something happened where Dusty lost a, a lose to Leave Town match, then all of a sudden the Midnight Rider would show up. He did it a lot in Florida, and it was more like a full full body suit with a mask. But when he did it in Crockett, I think that was like the best, mostly because he had Magnum TA to cut these promos about the Midnight Rider. He rides all night long for a cattle drive and he would give these really long-winded promos that rivaled uh, Nicholas Alexander uh, at the top of a Ten Pod season finale and then like and Dusty kinda of cowboyed up the Midnight Rider, like he would come out with a cowboy hat on with the mask and everything. So it was it was much more cowboy where I think the Florida was like the proto version of it. But yeah, and then it would always end like he would win the NWA title, but the NWA wouldn't allow mass wrestlers to hold the NWA title, so you'd have to forfeit the belt. So I have
2: a question. Uh was that? rule at any point formally suspended because the Great Muda did eventually win
0: it. He was not a mask wrestler. He was a painted face wrestler. He's got like okay. half a mask, doesn't he? Great Muda? He wore it to the ring but he never would like wrestle with it. Oh, okay. That's face paint, Tyler.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm thinking That's face paint, Tyler. Okay. Alright.
0: Oh, but the, you're talking about the mask that he wore and when he got tired of painting his face? Yeah, that one.
2: So he didn't, yeah, he wasn't wearing it at the time. That, okay, all right. But that was
0: like 10 years after he was NWA champion. Okay. I'm, they do just take that shit away. Like, so a fair question. Like, oops, sorry. Uh, oops, sorry. You wear a half mask 10 years later. You're no longer <laughs> NWA champion.
2: A kayfabe. I do want to know why is paint okay, but masks aren't.
0: All right, because you can see the form of their face.
2: Okay. <laughs> che- checks out. <laughs>
0: Listen, in, in the words of hunky-tonk, man, don't bring sense in a nonsensical business, <laughs> right?
2: Oh, I found another one that wore a mask, Abyss. He for sure wore a mask while he was NWA champion, but that is TNA, so never fucking mind. <laughs> Blue Demon Jr., 2008. I demand the NWA booking committee come on here <laughs> and defend why Blue Demon Jr. in 2008 was able to hold the NWA World Championship for 505 days. What I would recommend to
0: you is look up Charlotte attorney Bob Trobich. <laughs> uh, I believe he was the sitting NWA commissioner at the time of that decision, and let him explain it to you. Okay. I'm sure he would love to talk about how he was the NWA commissioner. He's not doing a whole lot these days. I mean, it's hard to chase ambulances these <laughs>
1: days. So, Please write him an angry email and then post it on our social media. His response. Okay. All right. Can do. Can do. Right.
0: Or call him up on the phone and record it and
2: we'll put it on Patreon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's technically
2: illegal, and he's a lawyer, so <laughs> I don't know. Not in North Carolina. Only one party has to be. Oh, yeah. It is the, state by yeah. state. Okay. Nice. Yeah. All
0: right. yeah. See, that's why you got to do it. I can't do it in South Carolina. Then we get the feds involved, <laughs> so it has, it
1: has to be you, Tyler. Okay. I can do it. All right. Okay, So yeah, February 9th, 1982 in Miami, Midnight Rider beat Dusty, but like Jake said, he wore a mask, shit's not allowed, they took the belt back. In 1983, Dusty invented the premium live event, Starcade, and we could do an entire separate episode just on Dusty's creative and booking, but uh, jumping around some, he also invented Great American Bash, War Games, the less cooler Lethal Lottery Battle Bowl. On top of countless major booking, money, drawing angles, the Shockmaster, and several other characters, Dusty's creative side is very epic.
0: He had a hot hand. He had a hot hand. And Starcade 83 wasn't like, I don't know whose exact brainchild it was. I don't think it was like Dusty's saying. Because it was kind of like a very collaborative effort between Florida, Georgia, Crockett, to do this Starcade event. So it was like multiple promotions, but I think it was Dusty that named it. And then of course he made sure that the Florida matches were booked and done a certain way. And I think Jim Crockett promotions like kind of saw like, Hey, this guy has a lot of good ideas Mm -hmm. and we've kind of been booking by committee. We've had like Dory Funk Jr. And we've had an Ernie Ladd and they've had some ideas, but they've seen very old school where you have this guy coming up with some really good ideas. And this, this, pay-per-view we're doing as a collaborative effort maybe we can get him up here and you know we we can use him use his brain power to get our promotion going in a much newer exciting direction so it's just one of those things like dusty just raised his hand at the right time in a meeting the right people heard him and put him in a position of power and he lived up to that obligation
1: Continuing his dominance in Florida, Dusty would face people like Roddy Piper, Kevin Sullivan, all while trying to chase down Ric Flair for the belt. He'd weave back up to the Carolinas to take on Tully Blanchard and Paul Jones. But by summer of 84, Dusty would anchor down with Crockett and begin his nearly two-decade tenure with that one obvious gap for... One of the hottest times for any company in pro wrestling history.
0: And Dusty just having his finger on the pulse. And Dusty was always a big sports guy from, from what I understand. He was always like, listen, I'm the head coach, baby. You got to listen to what I say. You know, like he he saw it as a sports team. And he... Was such a big fan of like, oh, you got to make this trade or you got to get the right people in here and recognize that talent won championships. And that's what he was trying to do, as he said, as the head coach of this team was get the correct players in here to win a championship, which is make a shit load of money, baby. That's where you see him like actively going after rock and roll in Midnight, recognizing the star power of Magnum TA and, and put a rocket ship on him right away and you know there's a lot of criticisms for for dusty putting himself in the top spot but at the same time too as i've said many times before and probably on this podcast multiple times if you are running the ship you know you're going to be there and you're a top star in your own right you've held the world title twice i mean there's only people on one hand that could say that and dusty was one of them so why not him he knows he's going to be there at this time, Vince is starting to pull talent from different places. You know, Dusty's going to be there. He's committed to being there, so he's like, invest in me. But also, too, he's going against Ric Flair and losing to Ric Flair, making him a bigger star. He's also the guy getting the shit beat out of him to start the Four Horsemen, which was one of the biggest acts in Jim Crocker Promotions. He was there to launch careers. He was there to give people the rub. So you can say what you want about him being ego driven. I've already pulled up several cases where he was made a point to, you know, make stars. Him wrestling Ric Flair added credibility to Ric Flair. I know it's 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 hard to imagine that there was a time that Ric Flair needed credibility as a wrestler, but early eighties, like Ric Flair wasn't the star that he is in 88, 89, early 90s, not even in 86, 87. Ric Flair wrestling Dusty in 84 is the reason why he's that big of a star in 86, 87 is because Dusty adds that credibility. And that's what Dusty was there to do, was add that credibility to Ric Flair. So, you know, much of that career can be thanked to Dusty Rhodes. The rock and roll of Midnight's coming in and being televised on the Superstation and, and those matches potential that was there for Magnum TA to be one of the biggest stars in professional wrestling. The development of the war games matches, the creation of the four horsemen. I mean Dusty was at the heart of all that and was getting his ass kicked to get those things over and make those things happen and stepping aside for people like Magnum TA, people like Ric Flair to ascend to that next level that he himself had experienced.
2: Jake, how much of this, like in this time frame, like the creation of Starcade and Dusty building Rick into the star and the horseman manifesting, how much of that do you think pushed Vince McMahon to do what he did, you know, buying up territories? And obviously, we know WrestleMania came after Starcade, but how much of this manifesting down south was Vince going, well, I've thought about it, but fuck, I gotta. Do this now. I have no.
0: To... I think this was all a retaliation of what he was doing. This like, was Vince in retaliation Vin- to Vince. Yeah. Okay. I, the, the, totally. Vince was going. Was trying to go global. Vince was trying to put his television program in other people's territories. Vince was recognizing that he he himself saw himself as a head coach and needed some players mm-hmm. and needed the best players here with the best look and saw an opportunity to distribute VHS tapes in every rental location, put himself in his own magazine, but also create his own magazine. He wanted to be syndicated across the country. He saw wrestling as a more global thing where I think Jim Crockett's emotion with all these moves was just all about how do we make more money in Spartanburg? How do we make more money in Greenville, South Carolina? How do we how do we continue to sell out the Charlotte Coliseum? How can we continue to sell out all these shows? How can we start running A, B, and C shows every night? That I think that's all what it is. And it wasn't until like the idea of... I mean, I think closed-circuit television, it was just, you know, they were thinking exposure. I don't think they were thinking like, oh, this will be opening up to pay-per-view, where I think Vince was always trying to get to some level of pay-per-view and, and that level of success. And Crockett got there too late or didn't think about the sizzle being as important as the steak where Vince was knew it was all about the sizzle. If you, if you get the right players, the steak doesn't matter because you're, you got guys that are prime A grade meat, but you need to put some sizzle on them. And that's what people are really going to care about. But I know Don Morocco's a good wrestler. I know Paul Orndorff's a good wrestler. I know the liver, but I need him to put a robe on. I need him to call himself Mr. Wonderful. I need him to have a manager. I need him to be jacked as fuck. And oiled up and vascular. So fucking vascular. And just put him out in my program against another guy who's just huge. Blonde hair from Venice Beach. That's what I want.
1: So, first of all, premium live events, not pay-per-views. And second of all, this is 84. So the war has started. Like Vince is in control. He's scooping people up. He's buying up TVs. This is a slow snowball into WrestleMania one. So all this 84 shit from NWA, they're battling WWF at this time. So like they're in the shit.
0: Yeah. But I don't think that they even realize that Vince knows they're in the shit, but I don't think Crockett knows they're in the shit. I think they're like 83 like Vince has the shot across the bowel and he's, he's like, I'm in control now and I'm doing this and I'm buying up all these territories. Like people are already kind of mad at 84. And this is kind of like stick it to him a little bit, but at the same time too, it's like minor digs where Vince is trying to fight. He's trying to little finger the fuck out of this whole situation, fight every battle on every level where Crockett's like, Hey, we had this one big show and we built to it. Great. Move on. We're going to worry about Florence, South Carolina. Fuck you. We won because we had this one good show where Vince is worried about toys and action figures and and licensing and music and a multitude of things. And he was fighting all this stuff where Crockett was just like, oh, we just got to run one big show. See, we outdrew you. So fuck you. Even if they they are in the shit, I don't think they know what the battle yeah. is.
1: All right. So as far as 84, Dusty and Crockett would immediately start feuding with Flair and friends. He'd have a tag team title run with Manny Fernandez. And then at Starcade 84, he would be in the main event against Ric Flair, fighting not just for the world's title, but for $1 million. You have uh, Smoke and Joe Frazier, a special guest referee. You have uh, Duke Kiyamuka and Kyle Petty has special guest judges yeah <laughs> i knew that would get tyler that's the son of the king
2: <laughs> <laughs> not harley race <laughs>
1: <laughs> Flair and dusty end up on the outside rick smashes dusty into the ring pole dusty lands with his head just under the ring skirt providing the perfect amount of cover for dusty to blade that's right people this shit's fake <laughs> Dusty pops up bloody as hell, Rick goes after the cut, and even though Dusty kind of bravely fights back, Smoke and Joe stops the fight due to the cut. Then, 85, one of the biggest years in wrestling history, that other company is hosting such premium live events as Wrestlemania 1, Crockett would put their own dent in the wrestling world with the center of it being Dusty and Ric Flair. But first, Dusty would be part of one of the hottest tag teams ever, joining Magnum T.A. to form America's team. And Magnum had his accident before I was born, and presumably before Tyler's parents were even born. So explain to the people why this fellow mustached man was such a big deal, Jake. People refer to him as like a southern version of Hulk Hogan. Like
0: southern... Territorial wrestling. He is the prototypical babyface. The cowboy boots converted into wrestling boots. The flowing mullet with the strong mustache with the body hair. Like if you're like a hardworking dude, that's what you think you look like <laughs> on your best day. He's a very capable wrestler. You know, people may may knock him how good or how bad he was at the time, but he was more than capable to. Be a world champion at the time that they were getting him ready for it, and as far as his promos go, like I think very underrated. I would say criminally underrated were Magnum TA's promos. Like I said, he was kind of the guy that I think made Midnight Rider cool when they did it in Crockett. I just think he people viewed it as less of a promo because he's next to Dusty, which anybody would look that way. But anytime. You know, Magnum T.A. would cut a promo on on Tully or Nikita. It was it's just unbelievable. And his in ring work with Tully Blanchard, especially in the I Quit match, it's that's still top five, one of my favorite matches. And I just told that to Tully like not too long ago because somebody at AEW didn't know who Tully was and didn't know some of his best matches and didn't know that he feuded with Dusty. And I had to be like, Tully Blanchard's got one of the top five best matches I've ever seen in my life, and. Magnum was a large part of that and made that feel so visceral and real and came up to that level. And and also being paired with Dusty. And when people talk about Dusty being selfish, I think you'd have less of that discussion if Magnum would have been able to attain what he was on his way to attain. Because they were so next to each other. And Dusty made it so like they're like 1A, 1B. And clearly he was positioning Magnum to be that 1A and be that guy who beats Ric Flair. And Dusty so desperately wanted to be that guy that hugged Magnum and tell him great job and be there and be in the spotlight with him as opposed to, you know, some people like, well, he's just trying to steal the spotlight away. But Dusty loved Magnum so much and felt like he was so deserving of it. And they had a genuine friendship outside the ring. And, had such a good time together partying and drinking and a multitude of things and spending time together outside the ring. Like he just adored him and thought he was, he thought him was such a star and much of the same sense too. Like I said that, like if you were a Southern man who worked very hard, you thought you looked like Magnum TA. I'm sure in Dusty's mind, as much of an ego as he had probably felt like, Oh, I'm just as good at looking as Magnum, (laughs) you know, like that's how I see myself. And for him to step aside and let magnum arise to that level is kind of unselfish because dusty could have put him in that spot and I don't know, at that time i don't think too many people would have fought it i mean even when he did it after magnum's a- accident i don't think there was you know much pushback or blowback at that time maybe later is where a lot of it came but for him to kind of be there to help push this star along himself and get him in a position to be the biggest star i mean people still say that if if magnum wouldn't have had his accident and they they talk about crockett primarily stayed in the southeast people talk about like jim crockett promotion still being around today those two things of them staying in the southeast and not expanding beyond their means and magnum ta becoming the world champion like those are cited as the two things that would have drastically changed this inevitable
2: wrestling war that was happening. Question, Jake. Going back a little bit, who in AEW did not know who Tully Blanchard was?
0: It was an office. Oh, okay, person. all right. It was a, it was an. It's. It's not important. Okay, but it, it was. It was a. It was an office person. Okay. I was blown away that you would have said that to Tully's face because Tully is the type of person that will let you know how <laughs> big of a star he is. He will not let that slide for a second. So luckily I ju- jumped in and gave Tully uh, an immense amount of praise
1: and that kind of calmed the monster down. <laughs> so You heard it here on Timbo Pod, folks. Tony Khan thinks Tully Blanchard is a nobody.
0: <laughs> sure. Trust me, nobody believes that because Tony Khan probably knows more about wrestling than I do. I wish I we it. knew each other a little better. I would love to sit down and talk wrestling with him just to see what he knows and what he remembers. I'd have a feeling that him and me could geek out for probably 5-6 hours.
2: Dude, you can right. work up to being like the Kevin Don of AEW in a few decades. I
0: don't like <laughs> I have a very nice job where I count t-shirts once a week so and do a little bit of work here at the office. I, I'm, I'm paid very nicely. Very little is asked of me, unlike at my last job where I was asked to save multiple people's jobs and continue to keep a ego passion project running. I like the, the position that I'm in right now. I don't want... Uh, any more responsibility than than I can handle at this moment in time and I'm paid far more money for far less bullshit. So
2: all right, you heard it here first. Jake does not want to be the bucky beaver bucktooth son of a bitch known as <laughs> Kevin Dunn. <laughs> hey whoa. Whoa, wait a minute. This sounds like a Ford F150 commercial. Is it Blake? No. No, it's not. It's a commercial for the Tin Bell Pod Patreon. Hey, guys, it's Tyler here from Tin Bell Pod. Just take it a moment to remind you guys that if you want to, you can support us over on Patreon as well. We really appreciate you listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the show. I really need a
1: Ford F-150. By late 85, Dusty would again turn his sights to the world title and Ric Flair on the build to Starcade 85. As part of this feud, on September 29th, 85, at the Omni, Rick Flair had just beat Nikita Koloff in a steel cage match. Then Nikita and Ivan attack Flair until Dusty comes out to fend him off. That brings out Oli and arm to jump Dusty. Rick joins in, injuring Dusty's foot, putting him out of wrestling and on less than good times. Jump forward to October 85, and the feud gave us one of the great promos in wrestling history, Hard Times. I had a
2: project when I was in high school. I already did not have any friends. It was like a video editing class, like a general computer type of class, and you could do a project on whatever you wanted to do, and I loved professional wrestling. This is that like 2010? Not as popular as it was a decade before. And I did my best to showcase what it was about professional wrestling that was so great. And uh, in the very beginning, put an excerpt from the Hard Times promo. It didn't help me make any friends, but <laughs> I feel like I made a very good video.
0: Nice. I mean, it is promo class 101. I mean, it makes sense why he was put in developmental to teach kids how to cut promos. And critique people in their promos. It is a prime example of what I I always try and teach in that connecting with the audience and making it about the people than yourself because you want them to feel what you got going on and to let them know or to convey to them what I'm going through is no different than what you're going through. And Make that connection so people can put that in their mind so then they can process exactly how you feel so that way they know that, oh, if he loses this match, this is going to really suck, but if he wins, it's going to be amazing and I want to be part of both of those things if they happen or one of those things or either of those things It makes a difference. I have to be there for him because I know what that feels like much like in the same sense that I wasn't a big fan of winning time until Adrian Brody... As Pat Riley came around and where they portray Pat Riley in the Winning Time series, like I identify greatly because that's where I feel like I'm at with my wrestling career. And knowing what I know, obviously, of Pat Riley and what his career would become, seeing him on Winning Time at this particular spot, portrayed by a particular actor, like I feel something special about it and some sort of connection. And that's exactly what Dusty is doing here. And he's like visually doing it with, you know, put your hand on my hand, all of those things. He is making a connection, making it about the people at the same time, relating it to, to something they can understand because people don't understand what it's like to get in a real fight or have a real conflict or have the ability to settle whatever grievances they have in a physical altercation. So trying to relate it to something they themselves
1: struggle with is extremely important.
0: And that's exactly what he does with this Hard Times promo.
1: I don't know if sitting here and like ranking stuff is good podcasting, but just as like fans, do you think it's the greatest promo of all time? To me personally, I still have Eddie's Attic promo and Pipe Bomb over this. Where do you put this in wrestling history as far as the, the great promos?
2: Personally, I'd also put the pipe bomb over this, but I think like so much of what people find is good wrestling is based on how it made you feel, and all of the stuff that I had invested emotion wise in wrestling, and looking back on it now, and like watching that stuff with my grandpa when I did, like back around 2011 for the pipe bomb. That that's why it's so good to me, because I felt that at that time. And there are people who who felt this promo when it happened. They're going to feel like it's above. And I think that's what's so cool about professional wrestling. What everybody thinks makes a good wrestler makes a good promo is all true because all of it's subjective to you.
0: Yeah, it's for sure a top 10. Hands down, no question. And anybody's list is top 10. People have their own reasons why they would keep it out of their top five and we'll let them have it. But it is most certainly top 10, indisputable. Also something that should be noted in there, he talks about the out-of-work textile workers of this country. Most people don't know this, but Charlotte, North Carolina was a big textile mill area. And at the time that he's cutting this promo, a lot of textile workers are losing their job in the area, which is the area they are running. So that is why that line is used and brought up, the textile workers of this country. What he's talking about is basically the people I see every week in Spartanburg, South Carolina, or in a spot show in Fort Mill, or the people that drive up from Rock Hill, or the people that drive in from Gastonia to see me wrestle at the Charlotte Coliseum that have lost their job but still find a way to buy a wrestling ticket. I'm talking to you. And I think that's why that has a heavier weight to it, because he is perceptive of what is going on in his community. Like the auto workers, obviously, you know, well documented on the news every night. But when he brings up the textile workers, he's talking about people that live up the street, people he sees every Monday. And that's what makes it highly personal and connects on people on such
1: a emotional level. Starcade 85, that was held simultaneously at the Omni in Atlanta and also Greensboro Coliseum, Dusty would yet again take on Ric Flair. After a long, hard battle, Dusty hits Ric with a cradle and gets the win. However, there was a ref bump and a run in by Arn Anderson, so the decision would eventually be reversed. Following Starrcade 85, we'd see the creation of the Four Horsemen, which Dusty would continue to feud with, working the house loop, mostly facing Rick. A lot of these are ending in DQs and countouts. Dusty would also continue tagging with Magnum in a tag team division that was fucking stacked. And we didn't talk about it too much on Bobby's episode, but the Midnight Express versus Magnum and Dusty, that must have been just unreal. Yeah,
0: and like we mentioned on Bobby's episode, like the ability of the Midnight Express to work with just about anybody, and we we talked about like the Stagger Lee and Bill Watts match. I think just a little bit, just just taking every bump. I mean, you know, very similar to just bumping for for Magnum and Dusty. Like it's it's that whole situation. Of like Bobby Eaton taking the fucking bionic elbow every which way he possibly can to get it all over and of course another thing too like dusty knows this is your top heel tag team so like let's put some work in guys let's go do it let's put on a good one and make you guys look as good as possible and then just the war of words with cornet and dusty it just adds a whole different flavor to it
1: may 17th 86 dusty would team up with the road warriors to win that six-man tag title that pops up randomly throughout nwa's history they lose them to the Powers of Pain, who vacated them, and then Dusty and the Road Warriors would win them again in 88, until the Road Warriors turned hill, attacking Dusty, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. At a house show on the Great American Bash Tour 86, Dusty would win his third and final NWA World title, July 26, 86, beating Ric Flair to still cage match, but again, pretty short reign for Dusty. He'd drop it right back off to Rick August tenth, 86. After dropping the belt, he continued to feud with the Horsemen, uh, taking the TV title off Arn before losing a first blood match to Tully at Starcade 86. But between his last title run and Starcade 86, tragedy struck the entire NWA when Magnum TA, their chosen one, was involved in a car wreck October 14th, 86, ending his career. So needing a new partner, Dusty teamed up with the greatest Russian athlete to ever walk the earth. Not Nikola Jokic. Hill, Nikita koloff And that's that's kind of a curveball, right?
0: Uh, A little bit, but in the sense like Magnum had such a strong rivalry against Nikita. And part of the reason like that was done because Nikita was so green at the time. I think a little bit was done to kind of see if Magnum could carry somebody that green. Because there was still kind of that era that, you know, the NWA world champion needs to be able to wrestle a broomstick. Like, we're not too far removed from Harley Race, making lesser wrestlers look better than what they are. Like, yeah, sure, Magnum, you could have a great match with Tully, but so does everybody. Yeah, sure, Magnum, you could have a great match with Flair when you win the belt, but so could everybody. But can you make this guy who's very limited in his ability can you have good matches with him and he proved it he proved his ability and proved they could do that and they had the best of seven series and you know we're in that time of america russia cold war and but we're trying to get into that era of unity and mr gorbachev tear down this wall we're trying to get to this whole thing of like russians really want some of the american things like You know They want some of the things that come with the West and trying to bring that unity together so you can't just fight the Russians forever. There has to be a detente or some sort of sense of unity and bringing it together. And I think that's kind of what they were going for with Nikita in the idea of America and Russia and the superpowers, all a brainchild of Dusty in that, you know, seeing so many action movies and seeing that what he has here in wrestling is like an action movie getting a russian to come along and team up with the american to fight the forces of evil it's so 80s action genre-y that it just it it makes more sense than what you probably think and also to the images of nikita koloff crying on the cover of pro wrestling illustrated saying i cry for magnum ta like this guy who was like this he was one of my most formidable foes and i feel sad that i can no longer fight him anymore like what a powerful statement
1: over the next couple of years dusty would flow in and out of the main event scene he's handling creative a couple highlights with his new russian best friend he'd be part of the first ever war games match july 4th eighty-seven. It was the superpowers of Nikita and Dusty and the Road Warriors beating the Horsemen. At Starrcade 87, Dusty put his career on the line in a still cage against Jim Crockett rookie, four horsemen, and total package Lex Luger. Dusty would win the U.S. title when J.J. Dillon threw a chair in the ring for Lex, but Dusty DDT'd Luger on it. Around Starrcade 87, going into 88-ish, This is when Crockett is kind of like dipping, not just in ratings, but they're spiraling into a $5 million debt, which in the 80s was trillions. And then on the other side, WWF is just fucking killing it behind Hogan and Andre and Macho and Warrior. But a lot of people like to kind of blame Dusty for this downfall of Crockett, even though he had single-handedly booked the promotion into the greatest success it had ever seen.
0: Dusty's job was to put as many people in the stands at Spartanburg Memorial Auditorium. And he did that. That's what his job was. The thing that WWF did better is they had numerous revenue streams. They were getting merchandise money, licensing money, TV advertisement, publishing rights, a multitude of things on top of merchandising, pay-per-view, and everything else. Crockett was solely worried about local gates. That's how they were looking to make money. And when they were trying to make a big boy move, like buying an uh, an office in Dallas and thinking they're going to run this regional wrestling promotion halfway across the country to be more global, to be more of a suitor to advertisers and marketers when really the only people that are coming to advertise on your product are Hardy's and Mellow yellow that's a different thing man like that's you're 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 fighting the wrong battle yes your wrestling is far better yes your live attendance is far better but Vince is fighting battles that you're not even trying to fight and when they tried to go to the pay-per-view market and clearly it's like they're still doing the Just the one light on top of the ring and limited entrances and not flashy, overdone. And you don't have someone like Dick Ebersole giving you pointers on lighting and floor direction and camera angles and how to film this thing like a football game. You just have people that have just filmed wrestling and it looks like a wrestling program as opposed to a spectacle or a high professional TV broadcast. You know, those things happen. And when you're trying to capture an audience in Des Moines, Iowa and multitude of cities across the country where you're just worried about this particular show in Greenville, South Carolina on Monday night, you can't blame Dusty for that. Dusty did his job as the booker, but I just feel like it was the Crockett's not figuring out what they were. They should have just been like, we are a local wrestling promotion. And we will continue to be a local wrestling promotion and we will focus on our business and take care of our business and do our best here. And Vince can do whatever he wants on a national stage, but we will make sure that we have the best wrestling product. If you see our product on the Superstation, you will see that we are far better. And Ted Turner is committed to us being on his Superstation and we broadcast across the country maybe we'll do a spot show here and there maybe we'll do a west coast loop every once in a while but we're gonna not stretch beyond our means we know exactly what we are and what we can do in different places and when Crockett would go to different places it was with varying degrees of success when they would go to Chicago it'd be good because the Chicago market's great but sometimes when they would go to New Jersey it wouldn't be all that great Baltimore was always really good because that was the battle line but you know WWF could run Scratton PA and probably suck a fucking fat one. I mean, you, you had to know what you were fighting and who you were. And I think that was part of the problem. Why it wasn't as successful. They didn't know exactly who they were and what they were and what the competition was doing and why what they were doing that you weren't doing was important and something to understand themselves. But yeah, a lot of people want to blame it on dusty. A lot of people like the Crockett's just buying a jet so the boys could make multiple shows when your sole form of income is live gate to make sure that your top stars can make as many live gates as possible. I don't think that's a bad business expense, okay? But every one of the fucking shoot interviews is like, oh, well, buying that plane, you know, I was bankrupt the company. No, them trying to make large investments as if they were a large company when they're really a small local promotion. That's what the issue was. As a matter of fact, the the accountant legendarily had a nervous breakdown because they had moved so much money around to buy an office in Dallas, buying the UWF territory when they could have just took it, making large business purchases as if they had multiple revenue streams to pay for all of it. It gave their local bookkeeper, who was basically just a guy that probably kept book for the local print shop up until like maybe 10 years ago. Now all of a sudden he's adding millions of dollars over here and they're moving so fast and so quickly and nothing's coming in and and you're trying to figure out how to make it all work. He had a nervous breakdown. I mean, those are signs of of failure. What Dusty's job was, no, I mean, people want to say like, oh, Dusty was pushing him to do those things. He was pushing for that office in Dallas. Because, you know, Dusty had a a thing against WWF. He called the Tin Can Championship, the toy belt. He saw it as fake and not good. But he's doing that stuff because he's in charge of creative and he feels that his creative product is better. You know, you as the boss, Jim Crockett, have to say no to someone like Dusty when it comes to business. And say, hey, you worry about making sure this product is good. I'll make sure that you continue to create this product. And none of that was done it was just rock and roll and touring and it just goes away
1: so this massive dip in business led to the 88 sale to ted turner and the corporate turner regime wanted a more polished wwf style show that aired on squeaky clean tbs so they were already kind of stepping on dusty's creative toes on top of that they did not want blood or horrific graphic violence which Dusty rebelled against by doing blood and horrific graphic violence. During a November 26th national televised episode, Dusty booked a storyline in which the road warrior animal pulled a spike out of his shoulder pads and jammed it into Dusty's eyes. And as a 35-year-old who understands this is a work and that he bladed, this shit is haunting. It is so brutal, man.
0: Yeah, it's all to draw a house, because that's what you do creatively, and you see it on All Elite Wrestling every week. Is That's why you know, blood is such a big part of the program, because it's violence. You know, It's a threat of violence. There's a threat of actual danger and other people hurting other people. Oh. That's what makes pro wrestling so interesting. I thought
2: you were talking about missing an eye, and that's why Julia Hart still has the eye patch after like a year.
0: Yeah, it's strong money. You, you should see it. Merch sales are insane with that eye patch. She has merch? Eye patch merch? You know how many Julia Hart eye patches we sell on a weekly basis? How many?
2: A <laughs> lot. A lot? Yeah. Julia Hart's over? Is that what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, with the eye patch, all yes. Right, all right. I
2: stand corrected. My apologies.
0: <laughs> you heard it here from the Merchandise Manor at All Elite Wrestling. Julia Hart eye patches flying off the <laughs> merchandise shelves. Make sure you check them out at every All Elite event that's coming to your town.
1: So, uh, TBS was pissed. They fired Dusty, and for a bit, this was the end of the American Dream and NWA slash WCW. And for anyone that wants to blame Crockett's downfall on Dusty, following his exit, WCW fucking bombed to new lows on the booking of George Scott, who Dusty said, and I quote, ain't shit! <laughs> <laughs> Is that really cool? he said something like George Scott's book ain't shit and I was like damn Dusty oh, fucking George
0: Scott was the fucking most miserable <laughs> laughable deplorable uneducated thorough stuck in time <laughs> book you don't ever see it, it ain't shit baby it ain't shit baby
1: so following his unglamorous exit Dusty would join up with Florida pals Mike Graham and Steve Kern to start their own promotion professional wrestling federation getting started around february of 89 dusty made his debut march 4th 89 in titusville florida where he teamed up with steve kern and the big still man aka tugboat and uh dick slater uh, a week later he won the uh the title when he beat the big still man for for i'd assume it would be vacant at that point
0: and you're talking about big steel man fred ottman later yes, the Shockmaster, exactly. correct? Who is also married Dusty's uh. daughter, if I'm not mistaken. So that's his son-in-law, thus why he's putting such a prestigious spot. Also, something else that should be said about this, this stint through Florida, it was a way to kind of recapture the past, to kind of see if, like, Dusty could resurrect Florida. Also, too, it should be noted that while Dusty was working with jim crockett promotions jim crockett would would purchase territories that were dying off because of vince mcmahon like at one point in time crockett bought kansas city and basically were, we're going to send some of their talent to go work kansas city george south and rocky king were one of them the warlord was one of them sam houston was one of them baby doll was one of them and they were all went to kansas city as crockett talent to be like you know this is you know Jim Crockett Promotions running Kansas City, and it was miserable and awful. And the people that promoted the towns were so behind the times and couldn't compete with WWF running. You know the Kemper Arenas and the the multitude of other like Kansas City territorial towns that WWF was just coming in and blowing them away with a new way and more professional advertisements and television and kansas city territory would only draw a house when rick flair rock and roll express and other stars of the superstation would show up they would show up and go to george like i don't know why you guys are complaining this house is great and george was like yeah because you guys are here you guys leave and it's back to wrestling in front of 30 people every night so they bought up that territory then it closed down and then a lot of those wrestlers were driving back home to continue to work in charlotte And a lot of those guys got calls while they were on the road, like, hey, don't bother going back to Charlotte. Go straight to Florida. We bought Florida. And a a lot of those guys from Kansas City went straight to Florida to try and do the same thing there. But George was like, no, I'll just do jobs. I'll just do jobs on TV, sleep in my own bed. I don't care. I'm not going to another territory away from my kids. No, I'll just do jobs. I'm making the same amount of money because the houses are shit. So, I'm just gonna do jobs, make the same amount of money, and see my kids every day. Where a lot of people went down to Florida and same thing happened, Florida closed down and Crockett's would just run a spot show here and there. They went didn't have a full blown territory with their talent there. And then obviously, once Dusty left, Dusty always had a great affinity towards Florida and thought he could bring it on all, all back with some certain wrestlers that were still knocking around that weren't under, you know, Crockett's banner and weren't a part of the WWF That probably were a top star at somebody else's territory. Well, once you come to Florida, yeah, sure, why not? It's beautiful there. You know, the Steve Kearns of the world. So that's kind of what this was. It's a little stopover in Dusty's career.
2: So you're telling me that when Dusty ran PWF, Tugboat was his Triple H?
0: Yes. Okay. That's what I'm saying. All right. That's what you got out of that whole history (laughs) lesson. Thank you so much for listening and paying attention. I think I nailed it.
1: (laughs) So. Florida's doing okay here, and they have a pretty stacked roster. You're looking at Terry Funk, Bam Bam Bigelow, the Nasty Boys, the great Scott Hall, you got Dustin Rhodes, Mike Awesome. So that starts kind of drawing the attention to WWF. Vince contacts Dusty, offers to buy the territory and bring Dusty into the Federation. Dusty declines, always kind of seeing the bigger picture, wanting to do it on his own. Very Cody of him. But the backers of PWF didn't have the funds or desire to compete with someone like Vince. So Dusty eventually changed his mind. He dropped the belt to Tugboat May 20th, 89, and got the hell out of there. Nine days later, Dusty made his untelevised WWF debut at a house show in Montreal, substituting for Jake Roberts, and he beat Ted DiBiase. And that is where we will pick up for Dusty Rhodes Part 2. All right. Thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. We've gotten uh, a lot of new people lately, and that is always super cool, especially as we're sitting here contemplating a Season 3. Man, Scout, and Tyler, you guys got anything?
2: Yeah. uh, Thank you guys for the support. Please check out the Patreon. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed in your podcast feed and leave reviews and rate. Uh, Those things help us pop up a little bit higher against all the uh, big Conrad Thompson's of the world.
0: (laughs) Yes. Please, uh, Patreon is so important. As you know, Nicholas said, that we're contemplating a season three. We're not going to be like, oh, well, we're not going to get picked up for a se- uh, next season. And we don't know. And then it starts trending. And then all of a sudden, a media corporation's like, no, no, we're coming back. They're going to have another season. And then we should put something out on social media and figure out what we're going to talk about when we're not ready to do it yet. No, no, we're not going to. We're, we're, we're going to have a season three. We can confirm that. But when we start talking about and having discussions, the Patreon people are probably going to get a chance to really craft what that is and talk about it and have a lot more input in what happens. And obviously, in between the seasons, we'll probably do some more check-in stuff. I'll probably do more pop quizzes for Tyler in between the seasons because people seem to like that. So we're going to come up with a lot more wonderful and great things happening on Patreon in between the seasons to satiate the audience as well, but at the same time to gear up, think about, discuss, and most specifically craft to how you guys want it. So get in early now. It's very important. And also to tell a friend about this podcast. Every good podcast I know is been created word of mouth. The more good that you guys could do, we have a lot of great people making memes. A lot of you are out there. <laughs> Coming up with some really <laughs> awful ones with Tyler, ones involving my dick. Uh, we have had so many interactions on social media, far more than than the previous like seasons that we've had. Season two has been really incredible as far as social media. Like I always know when you guys are listening to those episodes, you got something funny to say about it. You got some sort of comment. Please keep those up, but also to tell a friend. There's always people like that post on Facebook. Like, got any podcast recommendations? Just let them know about 10 Bell Pod and all the great episodes that we have because that's the thing that's going to make this thing a success
1: and uh,
0: get us to do even more seasons.
1: All right. And we will see you next week for the season finale of 10 Bell Pod.